Before you dive into this exciting episode, I'd like to let you know about the Squash Playbook, your tactical blueprint for success. The playbook is written based on the most common solutions I have given to the people I coach over the last 20 years. It is the ultimate how-to guide for any squash fan, and you can grab a free copy right away by visiting squashplaybook.com or clicking on the link in the show notes. Are you freaked out by that hard-hitting hacker? Frustrated with running out of ideas against the relentless retriever? Want to close out matches more clinically when in the lead? Or do you need some mental tools to overcome bad calls by referees? These answers plus many more have been brought together all in one place for the squash community. The Squash Playbook is a practical toolkit that breaks down over 40 scenarios that are most commonly faced on the court. Each scenario provides the psychology and the strategy needed to get a positive result. Each chapter wraps up with the top six key points to keep things simple and practical. The aim of the book is to transform reactive players into proactive tacticians. I focus on breaking down complex situations into straightforward, effective strategies for those high pressure moments in a match. So why not grab your copy now and step onto the court next time with a clear head and a set of strategies to win those matches you know you're capable of. Please enjoy the show. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, everyone. How's it going? Welcome to the next installment in the Squash Mind podcast series. Today, I'm being joined by Jenny Dunkoff. Jenny is one of the greatest players that England has ever produced. She reached world number two in December 2019. She's won 10 tour titles. She's got 112 caps for England, which is which is phenomenal. She's also managed to get three silver medals at the Commonwealth Games, only being stopped on most occasions by Nicole David. So she was in a generation where Nicole David was 
playing and arguably Nicole David was one of the greatest players to have played the game. So for Jenny to become world number two and be slightly behind Nicole David is nothing to be sniffed at. As a junior, she was the European junior champion and she won two individual European titles as a senior as well. She managed to get two British national titles and was also part of the winning England ladies team at the World Team Championships in 2016. She had a real good period in it, and we talk about it in the podcast a little bit more. In 2009, she won three big titles back-to-back, which ultimately got it to world number two, the Soho Square Open in, in Egypt, the US Open, and the Qatar Classic. She lost in 2011 in the World Open final to her nemesis, Nicole David, and we go into quite a cool discussion about her trying to compete with Nicole and, and how this was. And yeah, just the, the the conversation is great. It's really broad, really wide ranging, and one that I think you'll find super insightful. It's so great to hear how she opens up. She is very honest about the mental side of the game, and we go into a, a lot of discussion around what it was like in her environment growing up. She she was the father, or the, her father-in-law was David Pearson, the national coach and, and the coach who produced Nick Matthew, Laura Massara, Peter Nickel work with him. So, you know, having someone like David Pearson as your father-in-law is going to put you in good stead, of course. But she comes across great. It's it's just such a, a cool conversation. We, we got on really well. And lots of little tips to take from what she has done in her career. She is currently the master of ceremonies uh, for the PSA. So if you've seen the PSA events, not so much with all the COVID stuff, but she comes across brilliantly. She has been really well received in that. And she's also the junior Australian coach now. She lives in Australia, in Brisbane, in particular with her partner, Rachel Grinham, who herself was a world number one. And we have a little discussion around how that was competing with someone you are in a relationship with. And her philosophy around the junior squash in regard to Australia is insightful, really opening the mind and really got me to think a little bit about my philosophies and how things are going with the way I coach as well. So she's taken her wealth of knowledge, you know, being world number two, being playing for 17 years on the pro tour, winning loads of junior titles, you know, number one in her age group all the way through her junior ranks. And it's just a fun conversation. You can you can tell the passion and enthusiasm in her voice. She enjoys what she does massively. And I hope you'll find a lot of takeaways and a lot of nuggets from this really insightful chat between myself and Jenny Dunkoff. One small caveat, uh, the sound recording is not great on this. Uh, the first maybe 15 minutes of the podcast, there was quite a long delay. Uh, she was in Brisbane. I'm not sure if the, the distance had anything to do with it, but it gets a little bit easier as the podcast uh, progresses. So hopefully you can stick with it because, yeah, it's really insightful of what we talk about. Right. Um, welcome, Jenny Dunkoff. How's it going? How are you keeping? I'm good. Thank you, Jesse. Nice to see you. Thanks for having me on. Uh, looking forward to talking to you. I'm good. Thanks. 
Good, awesome. Um, so you know, I think we we knew each other a little bit, not initially in the junior days, but you know, as young pros, we were similar age. You know, we were competing and and not competing against each other, but you know, playing some similar tournaments. But um, I would just like to to know a bit of your background, where you are in the world currently, what are you getting up to with life, say in the last you know few years or so. Yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, like you say, we were both professional players, crossed paths a little bit without knowing each other too well. Um, so yeah. Yeah, long, well, not even that long story short, but same as a lot of professional players, went to school, left school after my A-levels, um, straight onto the professional tour. Back then it was Whisper, then WSA, now PSA, and they retired about months ago. And I'm now in Brisbane, where in Australia, in sunny Queensland, which is pretty nice, especially at this this um, time at the moment that everyone's going through, we're fortunately um, in a good situation in Queensland, Touchwood. So yeah, thinking a lot about people back home at the moment, it's a pretty dire time. So I hope everyone back home's all right and I can't wait to sort of get traveling again. But for the time being, I'm in, in Australia, which is great. I'm coaching squash, so no longer playing. I try and play a bit of doubles every now and again. It's a bit easier on, on the body. Nice. <laughs> And yeah, I work part time, part time for Squash Australia as the performance pathway coach. So basically a national junior coach, which has been uh, I'm really looking forward to get even more stuck into that with. It's been good so far and we've, we're heading to Perth at the end of the month to get out to Western Australia and run a camp out there. So trying to um, get in, in geographically Australia is so big compared to sort of. Mm. myself growing up in England it was easy to get everyone concentrated into areas and bring up the level like that whereas Australia you know it's not cheap to fly across the country to a tournament things like that so we're trying to take ourselves um, not that we're you know <laughs> so important but trying to get out to the states as opposed to everyone having to come to Queensland or your national center or, or things like that mm. um so that's been good I'm looking it's been a real shame obviously COVID we, we were due to hold the world juniors on the Gold Coast here and we have trans uh, trans Tasman where it's a test match in New Zealand and uh, Australia which would have been my first sort of taking the kids to an event and nice. seeing them play well not seeing them play but actually looking after them and being coach and everything so that was all a real shame for the kids and we've had various lockdowns between the states the Victorian kids haven't been able to play as much so it's been a bit of a obviously stop start a year but touch wood things are getting back to normal and next year there's going to be a lot more squash uh, so outside of the squash Australia stuff I'm just private coaching really uh, the club called Stafford in North Brisbane Nice. Well, geez, thanks. Thanks for that update. And and I was aware you're in Brisbane, and, and I think a lot more people have seen you recently uh, doing a great job on on emceeing on on a lot of the PSA events, and and a lot of good feedback in that. And and I for one enjoy what you bring to it. And it's a very different angle, you know, being at the real top of the game and and, and and asking some really interesting questions of the players and and putting it across. And just looking looking back a little bit at what you did as as a junior leading into your into your senior career, you know, you you were the European junior champion you won the European individuals twice um two times British national champion you know this list goes on and on and on and like like I alluded to in the introduction you know your 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 CV is is flipping awesome there's so much in there you know you've been playing and achieving at the highest end of the game for for a number of years and I, I suppose I, I reached out to you to have a bit of a, a discussion around 
your career and reflecting back at what you did as a junior, transferring to the seniors, how you sustain success, and, and ultimately really try and unpack the mental side of the game. But what was really interesting, obviously, we had a, a little chat before we started recording and, and on WhatsApp a bit that you actually thought the mental side of the game was one of your weaker areas. Um, could you expand on that? And can, can, you, can you theorize arguably why you were one of the greatest British players that, you know, has, has been, but you say the mental side wasn't your strongest suit? Yeah, I mean, that's probably, a, well, it, I don't think it was my strongest suit. I mean, there's, where do you start? There's so, so much to go through in terms of a career, but more so, I think I was, I, I'm not bad mentally at all. I mean, I guess, you know, my, my career, obviously, you can't be that bad mentally if, if you've done all right. Um, but it's more when things start going wrong, that's where I'm not mentally very good I feel like the latter end of my career was pretty abysmal really okay. <laughs> and I really struggled so quarters of my career was I, I definitely have mental toughness in a lot of areas um you know in the actual heat of the battle and I'm competitive I'm I work in training stuff like that I, I'm I'm able to push myself I'm, I work hard um but it was more sort of struggling to I've I don't ever been that great at dealing with things that really hurt hurt me or disappoint me and uh things like that I, I wish I wish I'd have had more guidance at an earlier age I think um that I could have maybe been prepared for situations towards the end or like drop, loss of form things like that it was a bit of a downward spiral <laughs> for me because I I it's not in my nature to sort of try and delve too into those horrible Okay. feelings and then I don't know that's why I don't think I'm very mentally strong because I wasn't able to sort of regroup after once I sort of lost a bit of form and started getting a bit of injuries I never really recovered so for me that's pretty mentally weak <laughs> yeah that's that's so interesting you say because that that sounds like the definition of resilience and when, when I researched the topic of resilience uh, what the definition is is the ability to bounce back from adversity. So you were maybe confronted with adversity injuries or, or, or things weren't going right, but the ability to bounce back sounds like you struggled with, but on the flip side, the idea of mental toughness is maybe a different thing where mental toughness is maybe more in training in the moment when things are, when you're able to, I don't know how to put it, but, but, but to be able to be tough in those moments sounds like that was the good side, but that ability to bounce back was lacking. Would that be a fair way to say that? Uh, yeah, yeah. In in simple terms, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm I like to think I'm pretty, yeah. Like you say, or like I said before, tough in certain areas. But yeah, just I guess this. I feel like I could have. It's an area that I could have tapped into a lot earlier. And obviously, times are a bit different now, and it would have been a lot more available or something that would be straight away before the problems set in. You're kind of already practicing those techniques or habits that maybe when the actual um scenarios arise you're kind of prepared for them I was always someone that just things kind of happen quite easy not easily but things just happen naturally for me and I was decent at squash and worked hard com competed well and and then when thing when the sort of wheels start falling off that's where that's where I struggled and didn't have things in place that maybe I maybe in this day and age or maybe only a handful of other players may have been doing mm. back then um but yeah 
Yeah, it seems it seems that the mental sounds a bit depressing. Not, not, not at all. <laughs> that, 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 that's this is this is the type of discussion that I think I think we we want to have and, and just to just understand and unpack what's happening in in the mind of high performers because for everyone it's 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 yeah. very different. You know, everyone deals with things slightly differently. And for, for, for me, what, what you're talking about there is, is exactly what personally I'm trying to address is the availability of mental training or, or putting some focus and direction onto that side of the game. Uh, you know, I can't compare myself to you in the slightest in regard to the career, but there were certain things that I struggled. I try to see sports psychologists. I try to work on the mental side of the game. You know, 15, 20 years ago, it was possibly a little bit taboo as well and if you said you were working with a sports psychologist people thought you might have been a bit weak or, or there was there was a flaw there but I think when you speak to athletes now or you, or you hear what's happening in, in the sporting world people are really I'd say proud that they're working on their mental side of the game and they're putting such a, an emphasis on it would you say with with your the not necessarily the later part of your career but observing the players and doing some of your MC work at the tournaments are you starting to see a, 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 a priority on the mental side of the game and actually mental training programs with some of the players? I mean, every player differs, obviously, and a lot of them want to work on their mental side more than uh, the physical side, perhaps, and it can change throughout a season in terms of what you're trying to peak for and training phases and stuff. But these days, it's the absolute norm. And if I was, you know, at the top of my game now, I'd I'd pretty, I'm pretty sure I would have a, a mental coach or a psychologist or whatever you want to want to call it because not just because I feel like I should because everyone else has. <laughs> you think, well, everyone else has got this and, you know, it's at the top of the game. Everyone's pretty handy with the racket and can move well and fit. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we all know professional sport. It's the mental edge that can ultimately be the, be the decider. So, mm. you know, if that's one you know, 30 seconds of visualizing a visualization technique that you learned before a world world championships final that your opponent maybe didn't do that could win you a point. Who knows? You know, it's yeah. just those the small margins and the, that one percent and things like that that every athlete outside of squash, not just squash, obviously, that it's just part of being a professional athlete. And you see, even in businessmen, they you know, it's just a different bit of a different world now. Mm. No, totally. I, I think I think you 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 speak exactly to to what I've observed and what I'm seeing as well. I would I would like to look back a little bit in into the I suppose the nature nurture debate. You you hear a lot of people talking about this. You know, are people born with a natural talent or natural mental toughness? But you grew up in you know the golden generation of England squash. You know, we're talking about you training with Alison Waters, Laura Massaro, maybe Tanya Bailey, a little bit older, and and um, Cassie Jackman. You know, there was such a such a wealth of really high level squash players. You coming through the juniors, and and you could maybe talk to the the, the famous slash infamous um, squash house back where you were based at one point, I believe. So can you talk talk about that? <laughs> infamous. <laughs> I was there for most of it. <laughs> well, it was totally infamous then. That, I wasn't part of anything infamous. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, what was what was that environment like playing with those players, training with them, having role models to look up to in your younger days? Yeah, you know, I mean, I. I it doesn't make me laugh being called the gold part of the golden generation because we were part of a great generation, but the generation before us were pretty golden. You know, the likes of Del Harris, Cassie Jackman, Chris Walker, 
uh, Sue Wright, all, all the Peter Marshall. I mean, so it's not like we were suddenly the golden generation. That's just a sort of bit of a tagline, but we were definitely, that we kind of went on. We, we got to see, I personally was extremely lucky that my stepdad, DP, David Pearson, was um, a really good coach. And before he was even national coach, we'd have Peter Marshall, Peter Nicholl, Paul Johnson, lived with us, Cassie. Uh, sometimes when he became national coach, we had sometimes the like the women's team would come round for a night, and I'm like a young, young aspiring, absolute keen as mustard squash player. So it was like just wonderland for me. Uh, so I had a massive advantage, I think, funded by so many professionals, and, and I just loved it. So not just I'd be sat at court one at Harrogate watch, watching DP give all these people lessons and then around the dinner table at, at night and, and things like that. So I was very fortunate that I learned a lot by watching and listening and just being around that environment. But in terms of mental toughness and nature and nurture, it's always a tricky one, but I, I think there's, you're definitely born a certain way, but the environment is and your nurturing's got to shape shape you I, I think as well so I'm probably sitting on the fence but you know there's not I'm trying to think of an example but there's not two sort of many boxers that I've met at the Commonwealth Games that are from sort of a past background or you know that they're, they're tough they're you know they're from working class backgrounds or is generalizing a lot that's probably bad of me to say but if you the way you're brought up does lead to certain aspects of your men mentality. Thing. Yeah, no, I, I, I would agree with you because some of the <laughs> research I've done and, and there's a great book called The Talent Code by Daniel Coyle and, and he looks at, 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 at pockets of, of uh, time periods and really small little villages. I, I think you might have come across the, the Matthew Syed story, you know, the table tennis guy who, you know, him and a bunch of guys were just playing table tennis in, in a shed for, you know, in Milton Keynes for however long and, and you know, I think three or four of them went on to win Commonwealth gold medals. And so there, there is that, that whole, what you're surrounded by and what you're seeing. And, and if you're fully immersed in it with your father-in-law, you know, DP, you know, coach, you know, as, as we all know, Nick Matthew, Laura, Peter Nickel, you know, like got players to the right top end of the game. If you're a young pro and you're being exposed to that, that, that can only nurture the, well, the, the talent, first of all, the way you hit the ball, the way you see the game, the way you are immersed in it. And yeah, even just the conversations, like you said, with, with, with Peter Nickel, arguably one of the, the mentally toughest players that, is, that has ever been. You know, if you are rubbing shoulders or in the same vicinity as him, you know, hopefully there, there's some, some residue of mental toughness that starts to, you know, pass on to you and the others around it. And again, I, I, I'm, I am massive on, on environment. And, and the more I've looked in it, the environment does shape so much of, of what can go on mentally as well as physically so yeah and, and again I, I was lucky yeah. I think I visited the house once or twice so but <laughs> was there, I think that was when Chris Gordon was there and uh, Alistair Walker and that was that right. was you guys I was knocking yeah, about. That, yeah that was a bit later yeah the squash house came a bit later than my sort of no I wasn't nurtured around the squash house my nurturing <laughs> was before that and I, and I actually think I sort of my men, my nurturing or whatever mentality came from before squash. I think, uh, just just my parents really, you know, brought up to work work hard and be fair, try your best. Um, not like winning's everything, but I was naturally competitive and 
the school I went to, it was an all boys school where sisters were allowed, which is a bit weird. Okay. <laughs> so, but it was a pri private school and just sport every day. And it, it, I guess nowadays it would be deemed sort of un-PC, but we were sort of rewarded for excelling. And it, it was, I think that shape just shaped me sort of mm. wanting to do, being competitive, being sort of, wanting to try different things in it and it excel at them I think and then I discovered squash while I was sort of at that school and I yeah, loved, loved it and, and went went straight into it that's yeah wow that's that's really cool that <laughs> sisters of the brothers were allowed at the school that's that's only gonna yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's weird <laughs> I went I went from an all-girls school I went I don't even know what was going on back then but I went to an all-girls all school and then to pretty much all-boys school where there were five girls there and like 200 odd boys <laughs> amazing yeah, can you talk more about great. How, how did you fit in how did you just did you just adapt on the fly yeah, I guess so. I was fine at the girls' school and I was fine at the boys' school. I, I tend to, I'm not, I don't get too sort of, I don't know, stressed or I just, yeah, but I love the school because we basically played sport every day and, and at Saturday mornings and things like that. We had fixtures on Wednesday afternoons. And so, yeah, I was extremely sad when I left that school. Oh, man. Nice. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm interested to know then, because it sounds like you, you had such a, a wealth of, environment as a junior how were you able to take the success of your junior career you know being European junior champion and transfer it into the pro game so so can you talk about that transition what was that maybe from 17 18 19 around that period can you can you talk on that for a bit yeah um the transition was luckily not not too difficult really when I when I think back um again like I, sort of that when I say I'm mentally week I think that was the latter end of my career and mm -hmm. everything I was generally all, I was always number one in my age group um number two or three in the in my age group in the world behind Nicole and Omnia uh so things kind of took care of themselves in terms of going up the ranking fairly okay. quickly-ish uh which I don't know if that sounds a bit cocky or but not and really. I was just so, so excited to get on the tour as well. It was just, I think, because I'd been around a lot of mm. the players and I just couldn't wait to leave school and, and get on, get on tour. And, and, it, and being English, we were so lucky that, you know, it's not like people from, you're the only person of, from your country and you, and there's the social side of things, you know, at a young age, if you're not even English speaking and it's not easy. Whereas for us, and especially me, because, you know, I've, knew Cassie who's 10 years older than me Linda Fee 15 years older than me I, I sort of played played with them and met them all so it was always a bit of a safety safety net for us the likes of myself Al Longlegs uh, Laura sorry Laura Massaro <laughs> and it was fairly easy for us just to go on tour and feel comfortable because we had each other and we had the older girls um we had Tannenbot and Steph Berind was sort of just mm -hmm. just above us so yeah it was all all kind of for me it was just I loved it I, I'd love to go back to that time where it was just so exciting I couldn't wait to I'd look at the drawer and be like yeah I, found, I reckon I've got a chance there or and Cassie always told me because I wasn't very good at 
I never calculated points or anything like that. And I'd ask Cassie what tournaments to enter and everything. <laughs> and uh, and D- DP as well, who's absolutely useless with rankings and points and stuff. So we, it was never a calculated affair. It was just play the players bigger tournament you can get into. Mm-hmm. And you know you'll get more. You'll get more from getting battered by Sarah Fitzgerald than winning a five k in Switzerland or something like that. So, um, and through that, I gained. Sorry, I'm going to say, do you think that lends to taking the pressure off in a way that that you would look at a draw? It sounds like you had such joy, such fun, such enthusiasm, and you weren't worried about your ranking. You were just you were just in the process of of playing and getting stuck. And would you say that lent to your performances at a certain point? Yeah, absolutely. I never. You know, the only I did that's a lie. I'm lying. I did calculate rankings after I'd done well at a tournament. Okay. <laughs> I remember being because I was so excited for the next month's ranking list. I remember being at JFK one time and I had my pen and pencil and I think I'd paid back then I'd like paid for internet or something. Brilliant. And uh, was calculating how many places and it was so exciting. And then I wasn't sure if I was correct, but I was thinking, yeah, I've gone up like. 10 places or, or something nice. but yeah for for me and with dp we never it was all about you know you do the right things day to day you work on what you're working on day to day and the ranking takes care of itself uh, i've never been a sort of point hunter or whatever you, you want to call it yeah the bigger picture was getting better at squash and competing against better players not necessarily winning but getting that exposure to to a better level uh, that hopefully you can match one day and, th- and then pass. Yeah, and, and that, that's what I'm super curious on is, is the habits and behaviors of our performers, hence having this chat to you and, and, and expanding this whole idea with the Squash Mind podcast series is, is exactly that. It sounds like you were not motivated by the e- extrinsic motivation, which is motivation for titles and tournaments. Okay, that came afterwards, but it sounds like you were more wrapped up in the process, the everyday process, the doing the little bits while getting those habits, do, like cultivating those day on day. So quite an interesting question I'd like to ask is what what habits and behaviors do you think you've stuck to religiously for most of your career I, I know they will change at certain point but but was there anything that you could really put your hat on and go you know what that was a non-negotiable habit that that you did most of your career um this is where I'm gonna let you down I think <laughs> I'm not I've never been the best and anyone sort of from my era at the English guys will tell you I was sort of the one that was the worst at warming up the worst at warming down but but I'd all which I regret now because I maybe if I started doing things along that line a bit earlier in age I might not have got maybe a a few less niggles once I hit 30 or um, but habits in terms of it's more of a I'd never I just it sounds really boring but just always worked hard I'd never I'd never cut a session short. Right. I'd always finish a session. Um, skipping sessions, I struggled to miss a session in my in my sort of prime. The same, it's the same as every, everyone, I would imagine. Um, make, yeah, I always made sure I'd fit, I'd give a hundred percent basically in every session, which is pretty not a very scientific answer. <laughs> no, but, but it is. It is. It, it's quite 
curious to where that's come from as well. Like, you know, for me, I'm no scientist myself by, by any stretch, but the idea that possibly the environment you were in, you know, someone like DP, I think was, was DP a bit of a stickler for sessions? Was he like, right, you're at that session and, and you're doing it? No, no, he's really laid back. He's, he's really laid back. Um, but, you know, he'd tell if you were cutting corners, but that's not, I don't know. It's hard to explain that. That's not really in my nature to cut corners and DP didn't need to, he didn't need to articulate that kind of thing. That was just uh, an obvious thing. You know, we, we were both, both enjoy history and he's, you know, you hear about people like Jesse Owens. I remember watching Kathy Freeman, Sydney 2000, just all those sorts of moments. I used to love, like you say about not, maybe not looking at titles and things, but I, I did love, I always wanted to win the British Open and things like that. I always, um, had that sort of glory um, dream mm -hmm. that I'd watch, you know, sports films and 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 then so that's the pie in the sky. That's basically what you're going for. So you know when you and I always used to think sort of um, you know if you're there's always someone else training harder or as hard as you. So if you're going to miss a session, then that's that's you know you, that's the fifth game you've lost because. Mm -hmm someone in Timbuktu who's finished their session and done an extra session so um so I guess yeah I, I don't I've gone off on a tangent a bit but so this is exactly what what I love to hear and um, and, and these stories and these divergences it, it you might have seen this documentary but it really reminded me of the I think I watched it maybe when I was in my early 20s Seb Coe and Steve Ovette they had that massive rivalry for the 800 and yeah Seb Coe is being interviewed and it was he was sitting there on Christmas Day about to eat his Christmas dinner, and in his mind he was while well, Steve Avet's getting a session, and and, he, and Sebco had to go and do it. He said there was no compromise. And yeah. I don't know if you've seen that documentary, but it was it was it fascinates me about uh, you know, that, that someone else is doing something, so I have to go and do it myself. Yeah, yeah, I haven't seen that documentary, but I've definitely seen some like I've seen footage of those guys and and know the story because again, I guess part of my upbringing was DP talking. He, he would know all about that and just just yeah just the I guess the desire and the uh, you want those moments that those yeah. sort of guys achieve and then the squash players around you as I was a kid seeing mm -hmm. them achieve that's what I wanted and that's mm -hmm. you know and I kind of knew because I could see them day to day what they did mm -hmm. to achieve those so so yeah. I was lucky that I could almost not copy but I was a rat in that environment so let's let's fast forward a little bit um world number two uh, Nicole David arguably you know we can maybe put Sarah Fitzgerald up there you know maybe um Heather Heather Mackay but arguably Nicole David one of the greatest players the women's game has ever seen for the sustained success can you talk about your comp competing with her you know I know you mentioned Omnia and there's other players but you know you being world number two and arguably if you were in a slightly different generation you could have been that world number one um what was it like getting on court with her competing and and with a few of those top players around your generation yeah it, it was tough I mean Nicole was definitely by a million miles my uh, biggest challenge mentally <laughs> as as well as of course uh, physically and, and squash wise but mentally it was pretty brutal because you know with, she's eight months younger than me so we've grown up since British Junior Open under 14s mm -hmm. Scottish Junior Open she was a skinny little thing no one knew her uh, and yeah just she's like a little whippet just got to get everything back um, 
so she was always so by the time I got so I basically could never beat her like ever you know I played a world juniors twice in the individuals and in the world team in the world junior team final lost her as well so I'd taken a few beatings in junior days um and of course you've got to try and have the belief that you that you can beat her but just in terms of that, that's the hard that's the hardest mental battle against a particular opponent I've had is trying to keep the belief when you've got a you have got the facts in front of you as well it's like well I've lost to her 18 times as a senior plus all the mm. millions and you, it's like and you've tried a few different ways of approaching your tactics and uh, and it does become I beat her a couple of times but it, it becomes difficult and then I'd also think that she was supremely confident against me I mean how couldn't she be I'd, she'd never lost to me since we were 13 sure. um, so that so that was very very difficult mm. yeah, no, she's <laughs> mentally like a, and like I said like she she did seem like she raise the bar in regard to the physical side of the game and and you know that i think there there definitely is an overlap between physical and mental you know if you physically know you're in a ridiculous place you know mentally you can push yourself really really hard and that that leads me on to my next question is is well what what kept driving you to continue you know maybe you know you might have not closing the gap with Nicole and did you use her as a benchmark or did you did you have the benchmark more within yourself were you trying to track your improvement with yourself or, or was it always trying to close a benchmark to someone like Nicole I guess without I just ended up in that position at world number two so the only thing to my only kind of I was there for a couple of years you know I was fairly consolidated in that mm-hmm. position so Nicole was my <laughs> was my hurdle you know I'd, lost her in British Open final, World Open final, Commonwealth Games final. Um, and I just couldn't crack. I couldn't crack it. I couldn't crack the code, Jesse. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, that's tough, I guess. And, and as you're trying to do that, all the other girls are getting yeah. better as well. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Forgotten the question. Sorry, Jesse. That, that whole idea of, of how you kept, I suppose, coming back. Obviously, Mental. you're having to yeah. fend off the people coming from behind, but equally so, you're trying to close that gap. And the, the, I suppose the main question I was trying to get at is, is, is how do you judge your progress and your improvements? Because I, a lot of the juniors I work with, and, and some of the when you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. the pros a lot of them judge it on external benchmarks going oh i need to be a certain ranking or i need to win a certain title and 
and, and some of the research I've done is quite interesting where some of the, well, most of the top athletes flip that and they judging their improvements more on their own benchmarks rather than external ones. How were you in regard to that? Do you think, were you, were you quite aware of that or did you just get on with the job? Um, yeah, this is again where I think I probably struggled in that I was way too much about winning and losing. Okay. So when I started losing, I found it really difficult to, <laughs> I'm a terrible example, <laughs> but um, yeah, I, that's where I'm the worst. I couldn't, regardless of how I played in that match and I lost 11-9 in the fifth or something, even if I played, this is when I've lost form and I'm trying to regain form. I struggled to get away from just the black and white of on, on pick up the paper or whatever the internet or twitter and i did struggle to get away from the result which isn't healthy <laughs> um no, I, I appreciate and he, your honesty and your 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 candidness mm. because this is this is this i hope people that are listening can resonate as well and go hey i'm not the only one that struggles with this because sometimes you see these superhumans and you think they've got this magic power but you know hearing from a, a world number two and and who's achieved massive things in the game to say that you struggle with these things for me is massively enlightening so thank you for the positivity on that regard <laughs> but there's definitely i should have things that you can measure you know say you've lost confidence and lost a bit of confidence and in, in just my backhand sort of solid hitting or it's more of a sort of attacking hit you can you know that could have improved within that match and there's always positives that you can take but personally that's where I mentally wasn't good enough or positive enough to take those little wins even though the, the wins within the match itself or your performance or even your training I was very much even in training if I played well then yeah, that's great. But I was always um, never that not not bothered about training. But for me, it was all about the tournament. It was all about the match. And I always, when people, a lot of players would say they'd be panicking going into a tournament because they'd lost a few practice matches. Mm-hmm. It never bothered me whatsoever if I'd lost. I mean, ideally, yeah, you'd want to be playing brilliantly as you lead into a tournament. But it never, mm-hmm. um, never gave me any doubt if I'd had a few dodgy performances in the run-up to a tournament, because I always felt like I was a good proper match, big match nice. um, player. Mm-hmm. And it didn't affect me. So I guess maybe mentally I was, I didn't, I, nothing really in training wise, things didn't affect me mm. too much. The training was, was, it was hard, but it was mentally pretty easy. Mm. Well, that's, that's great that you can separate that out because I, I had a, again, I'm not just myself, but loads of players I've worked with there, and you've alluded to it, that, that a lot of people judge the benchmark of training and was like, oh, I've had a, a bad week or two training and practice matches haven't gone well. And they, that would then spill into their performances in a tournament. But it sounds like you were really good at compartmentalizing that. And yeah, similarly, I, I tell a, a, a so still me and Tom Richards used to play all the time, you know, we live close to each other and I'd say my my win ratio was nine to one in practice matches and my tournament <laughs> ratio it was zero to ten. Like he would beat me in every tournament because he was working on a certain part of his game where I was a little bit more focused on actually getting a win in practice, which wasn't a healthy thing as well. So it's quite it's, it's really yeah. clear that you were able to compartmentalize that. Um, but just having a look at 
it was quite interesting reading a, a couple of things about yourself. So it sounds like in 2009, you had a, had a lovely patch where you won those three titles in a row. I think it was the Soho Square Open, the US Open and the Qatar Classic. That, that sounds like everything came together yeah. in that little bit of time. Can you, can you talk on that for a little bit and, and how that felt and, and what was going on in that period? Yeah, uh, good question. <laughs> I don't know, to be honest. I think that was just a culmination of, it was kind of, time-wise on the right track as my sort of I don't know ranking or whatever I was definitely on the up I'd played by the time well yeah if I go through it the first one was Soho Square in Egypt mm -hmm. that was actually a really big tournament for me mentally because <laughs> um, I'd got to the final I was in good really good nick or like I was fit I was training well zero injuries I never had injuries back then um just relaxed playing squash having a good I enjoyed Sharm El Sheikh it was warm it was it, it was great but I had a I played Omnia Abdel Kawi in the final who pretty much my apart from Nicole but um kind of my bogey player even when she was blowing me in the rankings I really struggled with her and I was too loved down to her in the final and I remember actually, this is off the subject, but Lee Beachel, because he used to coach me a, a little bit and to, to the end of my career. And he said, I bet you've never come back from too love down or something. Because <laughs> I'd be sulking and getting annoyed and negative and be like, this is rubbish. And yeah. which I, which, yeah, he wasn't too far on. And I was like, actually, because <laughs> that was a big match for me. I came back from too love down in Egypt against Omnair and won 3 2. Amazing. You know, it wasn't the biggest tournament in the world but that was a massive massive win personally more mm. so because of who I was playing mm. and I, I think consciously I was aware like oh I'm so confident now or I've got so much extra belief because I've beaten someone that I've always struggled with and I came back from two love so maybe okay. that um, gave me more confidence without consciously mm. knowing it and then yeah straight off to New York and I always played better when like anyone you've played and won a few matches you're on a bit of a roll ended up winning I beat Nicole for the first time in the semi-finals which was a massive massive thing mm -hmm. uh, but I, that was just the semi so I then had to play Al Alison Waters and uh, obviously you know Al uh, in the final and and won that so that was literally I was happiest moment I thought the happiest moment of my career not because I'd won the tournament because I'd beaten Nicole basically yeah I can imagine um and then I'd actually had, I came home and I'd hurt my elbow somehow. I couldn't, I couldn't hit a ball. So I, hadn't, I couldn't hit a ball properly for about six or seven days. Mm -hmm. And for me then, that was extremely abnormal. Like not hitting a ball for more than a day or two was, was abnormal. And I flew to Qatar thinking, I'm really going to struggle here. And this, to be fair, like no disrespect to the people I played back then, but the standard wasn't as good. You know, my first couple of rounds of a, of a platinum, what would be a platinum event, it's not like it is now the first couple of rounds. The last 16 quarterfinals onwards were always hard, but it's not quite, quite the same. Um, but anyway, yeah, so ended up, I think I was just on a, on a roll subconsciously because I was never that aware of what yeah. I was doing mentally it was just happening and when things were going well that was great mm -hmm. I was never too sort of you know tactically astute or set to certain game plans I just played how I 
played most of the time I would you know I had some sort of idea of what I was doing but um and everything worked well I beat Nicole again and played Rach in the final and took me to world number two winning that so that was my only world series tournament Amazing. that I won um so yeah so that was a good good few few weeks yeah. and I guess a culmination of I don't know just whatever I the years leading up and, and mm. everything I do did or you know day to day and things like that I think. No, well, well thanks for sharing that that's that's really insightful to, to hear that little yeah. process and, and that that sweet spot of a few weeks and, and yeah it's 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 a it's a bit of a let's say silly analogy but but I, I use with my players I go right you've got a massive piece of rock and you're trying to chisel away and you're trying to make something and you hit it the first time with a hammer nothing breaks you hit it 10 times with a hammer nothing breaks eventually when you hit it the thousandth time it breaks but it's not the 1000 hit that did it it's the 999 hits before that that led to that and that sounds like what it did it was you know all the the, the environment you were maybe growing up in dp lee beachel having that little chat in your ear i bet you were hoping to just go like hey hold my beer i'm gonna get this so he told me that that was years after that was in oh, like 2017 right. okay. <laughs> not 2009 <laughs> but yeah he wasn't wrong he wasn't he wasn't wrong <laughs> that he was telling you that between games at one point i thought man that's some seriously cool coaching <laughs> <laughs> no no he wasn't i wouldn't put it past him though <laughs> no. and um well that that links me to to my next question which which uh, quite interesting and and you're in a, a relationship with rachel and you know you were both competing and how was how was that or, or i'm not quite sure of the timeline were you guys in a relationship when you were competing on the tour or did that come later and could you, if you're comfortable, to expand on that idea of maybe competing someone that you are, you know, involved with? Uh, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's different. Uh, so timeline-wise, it's a little bit messy. We, we weren't absolutely not, we didn't even really know each other on, on tour initially, but I, of course, knew her. She was, you know, being world number one, mm. uh, was about to be world, world champion. Um just someone that I enjoyed the way she played. Mm -hmm. I hadn't seen her that much, but I knew I wanted to watch it as a squash player, kind of watch her more. Um, the first time I, just before you, when you were talking about beach saying in between games, it made me think of DP when one of the first times I played Rach was when she became world champion. It was the semi, right. semi-finals of the world open in Madrid or quarter, quarterfinals, quarterfinals. And it, I was getting absolutely chopped. I was two love down. It was a really cold glass court, absolutely chops. And in between games, DP was going, oh, you know, you'll learn from this. It's a good experience. <laughs> I was going, what? I was only really two love. And he's going, you know, this is what one day, all this, and, you know, this is where you should have done that. And what it is like. And I was going, well, what do I need for the next game? <laughs> um, so, yeah, she taught me a lesson that day. And she, had, she has again, I think. But... Yeah, we eventually got got together. Long story short, I've played with her when we've been together, when we've been separated, and when we've been together again. So it's okay. there's lots of different <laughs> different situations, but it's always she's she initially is a lot more used to it than I was because she has a sister, of course, was on tour, okay. Nat Grinham. Mm -hmm. So they played a lot. Mm -hmm. so it's not the same, but it's very similar, mm -hmm. and that it's kind of not the end of the world if someone, whoever wins it oh. is for me R Rach isn't very competitive which sounds silly but she's like the I think one of the only sports people if not the only sort of world 
world champion, top of their game sports person that isn't competitive. She takes losses really well if she's enjoyed it and she thinks she's played okay. Nice. Whereas I'm around the back smashing my racket up. <laughs> <laughs> she's she's just like, oh. that's so it. playing her was all, yeah, playing her was always fine because it was always going to be fair. You always knew yeah. it's going to be a fair game and generally a good game. Mm-hmm. Uh, unless one of us had a complete shocker but yeah it was I'd definitely say I was the more sort of desperate to win okay than than Rach <laughs> hey, thanks for sharing really really insightful stuff <laughs> so let's let's bring you into the present now so the, a few more questions that that I'm, I'm quite interested in so I alluded to the fact earlier that that you're doing some emceeing for the PSA um can you talk a bit more on this? Like, do you get nervous for it? How do you prepare? How do you deliver arguably such a high quality product? <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, well, I've not done it for so, I've not done it since March. I can't travel at the moment. I'm stuck in Australia. But yeah, I mean, it's something that I've had, initially had zero experience in. So it was very, 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 very nerve wracking the first time right. I did it. I think three or so years ago, British Open 2017, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was, yeah, absolutely nervous. At first, when I was asked to do it, I was really shocked. And I was just like, no, what, 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 are, you, what are you thinking? And then, you know, my squash wasn't too good at the time. And just, you know, everyone tells you to try different things. And uh, I thought, why not give it a go? And, and I guess I, I thought it would be, yeah, actually, I wouldn't. I'd never thought about doing it or wanted to do it ever. I've always been someone who wants to play sport. Uh, but I thought, actually, yeah, I wouldn't, wouldn't mind do, doing that if I can, if, if I'm all right at it and it's not like horrendously nerve wracking. Or so the first one I did, I was, I was really nervous. Yeah. But since then, you get, there's still a, it's kind of, outside for me anyway the closest thing in terms of that little surge of adrenaline uh to competing it's nowhere near as good or as you know it's not the same but you still get that those butterflies before you go out there and there's a lot of sort of up and down of heart rates and adrenaline and by the end of the day you're shattered but I've learned I've learned you know I don't do it the same way as I did perhaps at at the start and you pick up tips as you go along because I've you know I've never had any training in it I just Mm. and and these days I just yeah I've made mistakes and (laughs) loads of mistakes along the way I'm sure um but I just sort of say to myself now just try try your best all you can do is try your best and my big thing which is people might be surprised or people that that know me because I wasn't always known as being the best that sounds bad. Not the best. I've always been prepared as a squash player, but in uh, I'm quite meticulous in preparing for for my emceeing. Like I, ne- I never want to rest on my laurels that oh yeah, I know most of the most of the players and I can just chat to them. Like I'll always do. I spend ages doing notes and um, just getting all the information. And I don't because they're quite long days. I don't like. Mm-hmm. As soon as it's finished, I just want to get in my pyjamas and I'll be up early. It's usually 12 o'clock start and I'll be up early doing my notes. And I don't know, I I get more confidence. I think it was, I remember uh, randomly here, I think it was John Motson saying something about how important preparation is to being a a commentator or a presenter. and, And that massively resonated 
than me because I'd felt that in in my own tiny, tiny, tiny um, experience of being an MC, and that kind of just confirmed what I what I already was was learning. So I'm, yeah, I'm pretty. I think anything I do, I, w- I want to do it properly. But into MCing, it's so much worse than playing squash is easy. Um, like it's because it's just something you've done since you're a kid and you're just used to it. You've done it for years, going out in front of however big a crowd, however small crowd. But when you're doing something you've literally never really done before, and you've some people are going to think you're terrible, some people are going to think you're all right, some people might think you're great. It's kind of like yeah I don't know it can't you're gonna mess up and on tv or something <laughs> and everyone's gonna be annoyed and think why did we get Jenny <laughs> but I'm just like just try just try my best really oh yeah it comes across that way because it firstly I, I love that you do your research that that's that's the bedrock of, of these type of things um it sounds like when you're explaining it your face was lighting up which so it sounds like there's a bit of a joy and a buzz yeah. to what you're doing yeah. like you said there's that little bit of adrenaline that kicks in that 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 endorphin hits that you know pro sports men and women you know that's what you spent your life doing is 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 getting those juices flowing so to speak and yeah so it's really cool that that you've got that outlet and Again, me for one, hopefully, you know, you get back at it soon and things go back to normal. Uh, any any news on the on the PSA, like what when the next tournaments are? Have you been contacted about doing MCing anytime soon? Uh, well, I have in the last sort of few months or six okay. months, but I, I can't leave Australia, basically. Right. So as per, I'm a permanent resident. Right. So we're not we have to have special dispensation to leave the country, which is difficult to get. I could possibly get that, but then on the way back, you have to pay, your, yourself has to pay $3,000 to quarantine in a hotel for two weeks. No way. <laughs> um, so wow. yeah, it's not really worth it. Not worth it. Oh, that's a shame. Well, Fortunately, I don't, I don't, yeah. I was gonna say, hopefully, hopefully they, well, whether, you know, this whole thing gets on top of sooner or, or that gets sorted out. Um, yeah, it'll be good to see you back there. And transferring Thank to you. your, your, your coaching uh, aspect now, it's, you know, thinking back to your career and thinking what you can pass on to the, the, the young Australian squash players out there. What, what, what type of philosophy do you bring in? Do you have any, you know, certain tips and recommendations for your players, but also for some juniors that may be listening here? What, what, what do you think are, are some of the most important things that young athletes can start to do at a very early age? Uh, good question. I mean, I mean, there's so many things. Um, in, just thinking of my role in Australia, it's, you know, without being uh, negative, everyone talks about, oh, there's no Australian players and compared to the old days. And to be honest, you know, there aren't right now, um, really. But it's kind of instilling in the young kids not to be, yeah, of course, you're stuck in Perth or wherever and you can't, but, you know, people like Diego Elias, Nicolette, Nicolette Fernandez, there's, you can do it if you, it does, it, sometimes, yeah, you might not have, you might not see the national coaches or you might not even have a coach, but if you can tap into those kids a couple of times a year and in, in instilling some sort of belief or work ethic, that if you do the right things when, you know, not everyone's watching you, you might not see it, but you just keep, keep at these, that you give, you provide them obviously with, with advice and what they can work on and what they can do but not sort of just writing yourself off because, oh, no one can make it in Australia. 
anymore. Um, it's not easy at all. Uh, it's extremely tough, but it's, you know, there are players that have, have done it. And again, just being, I think being realistic, it's, it always comes down to work ethic, but also being realistic and honest with yourself as early as possible. So you're not sort of throwing tantrums when you're losing to someone that is actually genuinely a lot better than you, or he might be like two years older than you, but you're still, um, and just working on the bigger picture is, it's so hard because mm. I remember, you know, in juniors, it is the be all and end all if you win the British Junior Championships or the British Open. And um, it's, it's, it's your whole world back, back then. And then you get to a senior and you think, oh, how ridiculous was that? Like all the parents are there and, mm. and you realise that it's, it's, not, it's not your results really. It's kind of learning off different culture. I mean, I'm so keen to get the Aussie kids. Some of them have done, which is great. Uh, financially it's hard obviously but just to whether you're going to get wiped off the court in the first round of the British Junior Open or the US Open now mm -hmm. um, just getting out I just want them to you know yeah. watch as much squash TV as possible um, there's so much stuff like you know your your app I only looked at today and I'm thinking oh, I wish I had this five years ago like <laughs> think, the yeah, there's so much yeah <laughs> there's so much stuff that you can tap into from a remote location and and it's I think I just try and pass on pass on my passion that I had or still have for the game and as a youngster mm. you know when I saw the I want I want the kids to be excited about their sport and and have have dreams yeah. but then also recognize that there's a process a day-to-day -day process the habits you can't just yeah everyone wants to be world number one of course they do but how are you going to Mm. get there um so yeah it comes comes down to obviously that the day in day out daily training environment and what what they're actually trying to achieve yeah. um and there's obviously a million pieces to the puzzle to become a top top player so. yeah there's, there's a couple of things that really resonate there with me what you're saying because because in in a different context that that's what i'm trying to influence a lot of my juniors with, whether they become a world champion or not a lot of a lot of what i'm trying to instill in them is is character first me i, I like i like this idea of character and, and get the character right first and a, a lot of what you've said there especially about habits what you said at the end it, it's one of my favorite quotes i've got it written down is excellence is a habit and and high performers tend to be the accumulation of habits over years and years you know so if mm. if if you can get the character right, like you said, you know, yes, us as coaches have a responsibility to try and open that door and try spark enthusiasm and passion, but you, you want to also get the character of the person to go on squash TV, to go on squash skills, to, you know, do things themselves and, and, and foster these habits that they can do, you know, day in, day out. And again, I, I love that accumulation of habits, but the second thing that really resonates, it's, it's bloody hard with juniors, isn't it? I, I, it's it's yeah. that, <laughs> not that they closed off because that's generalizing a lot, but again, maybe you, I definitely know me, I would be getting this pretty good advice from, you know, 35, 40 year olds. And I don't know, like you just don't seem to absorb it as a junior. And, and it's another really it, great yeah. thing. Like, it, is, is it, sorry, Karen? It's so hard. It's so hard here in, in Australia because they don't particularly see it. So it's almost like you can't blame them because like, you know, talk about me growing up with a million players around me. I see it day to day. Yeah. So it's just, just not even a question. It, it's just what you do if you're a squash player. Mm -hmm. Whereas a lot of the kids here, they don't, all the best Australians obviously have moved 
moved abroad so it's not like they're coming to training and seeing Rachel Grinham or Donna or Pilly or Cusk and people mm -hmm. like that who have an intrinsic work ethic and that, that was taught to them from years of being in the AIS or not always in the AIS but you know it, it's it's a culture and an environment and of performing sort of an excellence mm. way of training that we're trying to sort of get get back get the get the culture and yeah. that work ethic and and also I I like I think a competitive environment you know mm, if you're doing a bleat test with other kids from your own state or the country you do not want to come last kind of thing yeah, but not, I, yeah like you shouldn't but you see little snippets of and that kind of stuff wind you up a little bit because you're thinking why what you know that's the hard part I find is like naturally someone may give up or something earlier than they they could have definitely gone harder yeah so it's like you know what that's your question is that are they born like that or yeah. is that because it's a bit softer these days it's well, without without it's sounding, tricky. yeah without sounding like old farts but it, it is it's <laughs> strange you know again you grew up in it I was lucky enough to grow up in an environment in Zimbabwe and then South Africa where man like you know if you lost that whatever even if it was a cricket match hockey match golf anything the competitive edge was always there at break time the amount of competitive games we played was off the scale it was a, we were competing about anything like who could do a one-legged jump further than the other and if you lost you'd have to run around <laughs> the field and yeah <laughs> different obviously you know there's there's a whole interesting debate about how many distractions there are in the world now there's these thousands of yeah, things that are pulling all these youngsters the social media the notifications on the phone but arguably it's our responsibility to create that environment like you sound like you're trying to carve out to go hey no listen this is the space that that you really that you really commit and, and train to and it sounds like a great project that you hopefully can instill your passion and, and take it across and you know hopefully when COVID starts to settle down you can really get out there and and, and do it and so so would, would you say that's one of your big philosophies and one of your big goals over the next um, medium term to, to get that up and running? Definitely, just like you say, getting those habits and the kids understanding and also the coaches and the parents who may not necessarily be aware that if you've got, if you start in a session at 10am, that means you're starting on court at 10am. Mm -hmm. Don't just rock up to the club at 10am, putting your shoes and socks on kind of thing. Get, you know, <laughs> which, you know, I said I'm not the best in the world at warming up, but I was always ready to go at, you know, that, that half 10 or half two or whatever time my session was and just little things that, that you can't be too harsh on them that they might not necessarily know because they've not been told it or they don't see anyone else doing it so just yeah trying to just basic little things like that how to yeah. practice properly don't go through the motions like have and it is hard because you feel like you have to stop them like knock on the glass like right guys what have you just done there in that last five minutes what what have where is the the purpose of it? And they go, oh, yeah. and then they'll, um, mm. but but yeah. But that that sometimes I find that hard as a coach because not not hard, but yeah, like actually pulling them up on something because I don't know, like I I I get the sense of of, of a blame culture sometimes with the youngsters goes, well, it's not my fault and and it's someone else's fault and they're blaming external things and so part of me 
gets a bit conflicted going, okay, I, I, I might let this one slide, but then the other part of me is going, <laughs> no, I've got to pull them up on it. But it's, it's such a yes, fine uh, line to walk because if you do it wrong, that kid might just go, oh, well, I'll just get back on my computer game and I don't need to turn up to squash. Yeah. So you got to walk that tight. Yeah, you're, I mean, I've been coaching for about two seconds, Jesse. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you, you've got a better way. I am conscious of trying not to be, I'm not a, harsh person at all but there you know there's I think as well because I've come from maybe a different background to a lot of Australian kids at the moment anyway mm -hmm. um, that you just want to help them and you can see just little things that will help them improve if, if they just start you know recognizing that which which they do they're, they're brilliant kids out here they've all got really good attitudes it's just trying to yeah teach them a slightly different culture the little ones and stuff. yeah foster it so last couple of things because because i know i know you're probably pressing to <laughs> to go chill for a minute. <laughs> um what's just thinking more external than squash uh it might might be linked to squash this but i'm, I'm, I'm always interested in, in in people's um you know maybe greatest influences you've alluded to some stuff uh, some athletes um whether it's people any interesting books that you can recommend, some talks, some podcasts that you're currently listening to or things that you're just interested in outside of the field of squash? Um, I'm not going to be very good at this either, Jesse. Sorry, I'm not much of a... Sound, I sound very unintellectual. I'm not much of a reader. I will tell you that. I'm very good at starting books and not finishing <laughs> them. And I've not listened to too many podcasts. Okay. But I'm massively... I'm always interested in sport in general and I mean I have read I think I'm probably more creative I think I'm a bit creative-ish mm -hmm. so I'm more interested in if I'm going to read a book I like a novel or <laughs> I'm not that as much as I love sport I'm not sort of that interested in in autobiographies unless I feel like I'm interested in the person a okay. bit more so or their story or you know you know I'd read Kathy Freeman, Muhammad Ali, Jesse Owens, Ronnie O'Sullivan even uh you know just people that I find interesting or people historically that have had to deal with so much more than sport I'm not as interested to sort of read I don't want to name names but right. something that's going to tell me their PBs for right that's that summer session or mm -hmm. things like that um and I'm quite a visual person I think so yeah all the the sports films and things like that as a kid that was all of that kind of stuff was was everything I sort of dreamt of and and football was a big thing for me as well when when I was little always wanted to play for England and okay. uh and people people wise in squash did you play to quite a high level as a junior football uh, not particularly. I mean, I played in my boys, <laughs> I was captain of my under 11 <laughs> team at the, my boys school and played for the local team. Uh, there was no girls football. So that's how I got into squash. I used to play uh, for a team on a Saturday. And once you got to 10 years old, you couldn't play with the boys. So that's how I started. I started, sorry, under 10. So I started playing squash on a Saturday mm -hmm. instead. Um, but yeah, I was all right. I was probably the best of my under 11s boys team nice. <laughs> um, my brother played them my Sorry, dad no. played so they used to kick so interrupted you no you go no i was just just saying my brother played and my dad played so i used to get kicked about the back garden a bit 
um, which probably toughened me up as well. Dave, yeah. My big brother takes takes credit for me being all right, at good, quite good at squash. Brilliant. He he was tough on me at football. Yeah. <laughs> it's great to see the emergence of of the women's football, and you know it's 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 all over the the news here now. And it, it sounds like if you were uh, a young lady girl playing football now you'd have a have a full pathway all the way through to the national team at some point and and this what this yeah. is going back what 25 maybe 30 years no not quite as long as that you know 20 20 to 25 years yeah it's it's great to see how far it's come and the opportunities because yeah the, you know women's sport you know at a junior level like you said you weren't given any opportunities it's 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 great to see that uh, and then i, I suppose final question what, what's your big netflix recommendation I'm, I'm sure there's something good that you've been watching recently Come my big netflix <laughs> Uh, it's not. I don't know if it's on Netflix. Viking. I do like the Vikings, and the Vikings last season is okay. out. Nice. Um, we've been watching Queen's Gambit. Yeah, I've heard that's really good. A few squash players, but people I've coached have recommended that to me. They say there's a little mind squash connection there. Could you? Is there or not really? Yeah, I, I'm only on episode four, uh, okay. and I quite like it. It's not my favourite. Right. I prefer my favourites. Um, We've got all sorts of, if you, I won't show you, but on our blackboard, it says Stan TV trial ends 12th of June. So we've missed that one. We're still paying for that. And then the binge, <laughs> binge TV, binge app canceled by 11th of Jan. So we might manage to okay. so cancel might- that one. But we've got, we're good at starting series and not finishing them. But at the moment, at the moment, yeah, Queen's Gambit are in the middle of. Okay. And I want to start the Vikings last season because I love that. Nice. Awesome. Listen, Jenny, that's been absolutely brilliant. I'm really glad we were able to spend some time, the divergence of our conversations, the directions it went, uh, just really unpacking some, some, again, stuff that I was surprised to hear, but really insightful at the same time. So I completely appreciate your openness, the honesty with it all. And it's exactly what, what my plan is to do with these is is to just get that that insight from you know high performers like yourself so thank you so much for your time and i really hope and wish that you get back into the emceeing soon it sounds like you've got a great great um career path coming up with the australian squash getting those juniors inspired and me for one i'm going to be keeping track and following and hopefully you can start to produce the next uh, australian great players thank you very much jesse thanks a lot for having me on it's been fun good to chat to you perfect thanks cheers jenny see ya presence process persistence the essence of squash mind hey it's danny pellegrino from everything iconic ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high end brands. And the best part, they're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 